As we come to verses 12 and 15 of the text, we really get to the purpose statement that Peter uses here uh, to open his letter. He gives us the reason that he's communicating. He's give, he gives us the reason um, for this letter. But more than this, he, he uses this particular section in verses 12 through 15, and, and this is really why we're singling this out, as a bridge of sorts. He, he uses it as a way to connect uh, what he said thus far in the introduction, um, you know, bringing out this really uh, list of the tra- chain of virtues that we've looked at in the, in the previous verses, um, wanting to bring some standards to his readers. He, he lists these things, um, but he's bringing this doctrine forth in a, an attempt to combat the lies of false teachers. And we see these lies uh, begin to take shape in the body of the letter. But here, in this second portion here, uh, 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 or I guess it's really the last portion of his introduction, but the second kind of phase of his letter, uh, this portion that declares the purpose, the intent of the letter, also, interestingly enough, serves as a testament uh, to his... Um, his last wishes, really. When we speak of the word testament, we look to this idea of a record of one's wishes that should be accomplished upon death. Uh, You know, this word testament usually accompanies the idea of a last will and testament, uh, some last statements that are being made by an individual. And here, Peter operates as someone who is giving this testament, to his hearers, but he also, and I want you to to realize this, he also is operating as someone who is giving forth testimony. He is someone who is declaring what he has seen. It is not just his wishes, but it is the wishes of his Savior. He's speaking not just from his own personal desires, but he has said himself that he is an eyewitness of the risen Christ. He is an eyewitness of Jesus. And so he comes to declare this last testament, but he's not just saying, well, here's what I really want to be accomplished. He's speaking as an ambassador. He's speaking as an apostle, right? This is what the word apostle means. It's a messenger or a sent one. And a messenger doesn't come up with a message. The messenger is simply the one who carries the message for uh, the source of authority. And so Peter here operates as an apostle. He operates as an ambassador of Christ. He operates as one who is giving forth testimony and calling this uh, group of believers to hear his last wishes, his last testament. And so this is really uh, setting up Uh, his argument for the remainder of the book, uh, how we ought to combat these false teachers. We we, kind of get to that in chapter 2, a little more so. But uh, as we come to this section, he is operating not just in in this legal sense, but also this was a tradition that would have taken place. 
This happens uh, throughout several places throughout the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament. We see in scriptures, we see uh, testaments that are given uh, by Jacob in Genesis chapter 49, by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 33, by Joshua in Joshua chapter 24, uh, which also doubles as a covenant renewal ceremony. And then we also see that David uh, gives a testament as well in 1 Kings chapter 2. And so this is something that would have been communicated by those who are leading, those who are wanting to pass down some important information uh, to this group that they are overseeing, that they are leading. Uh, and so we come to his purpose, his statement of purpose, in chapter 1, verse 12. He says this. Here's the reason why he's writing. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Later, if you look down a couple of verses, he uh, also says that he wants them to be able to recall these things. And so Peter's emphasis is this, I'm writing to remind you of these things. I'm writing to remind you of these things. Now, although Christians know the truth, it is the responsibility of uh, the leaders of the church to constantly place the truth before uh, God's people. It is the responsibility of, uh, of fellow Christians to place the truth before each other. Because we are easily deceived and we easily drift. I mean, if, if uh, you think back not just to uh, the biblical uh, text... But if you just think back to uh, general history, the idea behind history is if we don't uh, communicate the truths of history, if we don't remember the things in the past, we are bound to repeat the mistakes that we have already made. And so when we look back at things that have been accomplished, uh, that have been uh, incorrect, have been wrong, have been hurtful, have been harmful. If we don't remember what has been done there, we are uh, bound to repeat those things. And similarly, we want to go back and we want to remind ourselves of the things that we have done well so we can repeat those things and we can learn and, and grow. I think we're all kind of familiar with this concept. You know, uh, if you've ever had to uh, go through any sort of repetitive function, you've put together a list of Christmas cards, right? You figure out how to do it once. It was really painful that first time. Uh, but then after that, you're like, what did we do last year? You pull it up. I know in, uh, in my job all the time, it's something that I'm always uh, being asked to pull up. What did we do last year? And we go and look up and we reference that. Let's learn from our mistakes. What did, we, uh, what, what did we do? What should we improve? How can we change? And here, what the, what the truth of the scriptures tell us is that we need to be reminded often frequently of the truth of the gospel. It's not something that when we hear the truth of the gospel that we should, uh, you know, be rolling our eyes and be thinking like, oh yeah, I know, I've heard that before. Although it's tempting. It's very tempting. It's very tempting for us to hear the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and to be unmoved. It's easy for that to happen. Right? And I want to caution us against that because too often, as Christians, we settle in, we hear the truth of the gospel, 
We're rocked by it that first time that we hear it, that second time, that third time. We're, we're, we're changed and transformed by hearing the truth of the gospel when we respond to it. But then at some point, we become the type of people who are sitting on the plane and they're going through the safety instructions and we're just not even paying attention anymore. We're just not even listening. We don't look up. They're, they want our attention and they're doing the things where they're pointing and telling us what's happening and everybody's not paying attention. I mean, for all we know, like we could be at the, you know, the type of people and they could be giving a totally different set of instructions and no one's paying attention. They could be saying, well, in the case of the emergency, we have no emergency exits and everybody would be like, put on their headphones and doing their own thing, not paying attention. But the gospel demands our attention. The gospel demands that we encounter it fresh, new, every time because we are looking to see the beauty of Christ. We're not looking to be doctrine police. We're not looking to find a spot where, you know, we can uh, look for a loophole for how we can live our life. We're looking to see the beauty of Christ. And when you're always looking for something beautiful, it never gets old. When you become... Uh, someone who's looking for rights and wrongs and, and, and those sorts of things, then you start to get weary of that. You start to get tired. And so if you are someone who finds yourself today thinking, again, really, the gospel, just like we just keep talking about this, like the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, I would encourage you, don't look for, don't look for the rights and wrongs, and are we going through the same things? Look for the beauty of Christ, because in the truth of the gospel, we find the beautiful work of our Savior who dies for his enemies, who sheds his blood for those who do not deserve it, so that we might have life, and we might enjoy him and know him. He's already told us that he has come to give us life, and life abundantly. I mean, I'm excited for that. I want to look for that. It's the truth of the gospel that empowers us to live every single day in victory, to ward off the attacks of the enemy, to fight the self-condemnation that so easily comes upon us. Right? This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. He says, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. What can be greater than yourself? An external source, the Lord. Jesus, who's telling you that you are adopted, you're accepted, you're a part of his family. The beauty of the gospel combats our worries, anxieties, our fears. And so Peter opens up here reminding Christians, reminding his hearers, reminding you and I of these things. And Peter does come right out. He admits you know them. He's not like, well, here's some new information for you. He says, therefore, I always intend to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, though you know them, even though his readers know the truth, he's considering what is at stake. He's considering what's at stake for his readers the eternal destiny of each soul. He's like, I want you to hear this again because your life is on the line. And so let's go over it again and again. 
This is why we declare the gospel to one another, why we proclaim the gospel to one another, why we're constantly speaking of the gospel. It's, it's about building muscle memory. So that way, when you encounter hard times, when you encounter difficulties, you know that the only answer that you're going to get is going to be the gospel. Now, more than knowledge uh, of the gospel, he says, you know these things. Peter says, you must be established in the truth that you have. It's not enough to know about the gospel. You have to be established. Knowledge is not enough. It's not just knowing the right things, but it's being established in the right things. Paul says this in his letter to the Thessalonians in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. He, communicating something similarly, says this, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Right, so he's, he's saying, I've sent someone out here to help you. What did he send them to do? To establish and to exhort you in your faith. And so it's not just this knowledge. It's not someone who is going to come and lecture and give some information and great. But it's about the establishing of the believer. To establish and exhort you in your faith. What does he mean now by the word establish? Well, we look at two passages here to kind of give us a little bit of insight. First, we look at the very words of Christ in Luke chapter 22 verse 32, uh, Jesus encouraging here, uh, uses the same word established, but he, uh, it's, it's translated differently and emphasized differently in Luke 22, but it is indeed the same word. Jesus says this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He's speaking to Peter. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, he's talking to him about his denying uh, Jesus. He says, when you've turned again, when you've come back, here's what he says, strengthen your brothers. That word strengthen there is the same word, establish. To be strengthened. It's to make strong is, is, is the idea. Peter uses this same word in First Peter chapter 5, Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So this idea of strengthening and establishing, they go hand in hand. It's the establishing of a person, right? Now, here is an idea that we ought to get behind as Christians. To say that someone is established, or to say that we ought to be established in the faith, is essentially uh, this idea of strengthening, of protection, of uh, the beginning of something. And, and I think for Peter, what he's essentially trying to get at is really restating verse 10. This is why we kind of started here. He said, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Right? He's already made the case that, like, you're believers, that you belong to the Lord. But he's, he's saying now, be established. Do all that you can. Make every effort to establish yourself. What is the result of being established? That you do not fall. 
If you have these qualities, if you're practicing these things, then you do not fall. And isn't that the idea of being strengthened? Isn't that the idea of something being established? Right? We kind of use this word. I was, I was talking with Caden on the way over about, like, what she thinks established means. You know, what does that mean? She's like, well, you know, it's like when established in, in like, 2002, when some, it's the idea of the beginning, right? Or uh, it's the idea of building is what we are, we're kind of talking about. And, th- and this is really w- what Peter's getting at here. Because behind the scenes, you could be working on a project, you could be uh, behind the scenes building something, but not until it's ready for the public are you ready to say, like, okay, like, it's established. It's ready for people to test it, to try it. It's ready to weather the storm. You could build a, 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 uh, an entity or a building, and it begins on a certain date, but it is strengthened over time. It's fortified over time, and the longer that it goes, the more you see the faithfulness right here. And what Peter says is that we ought to be established in Jesus, in our faith, in the truth of the gospel. And so this is really marking the beginning of strengthening and the continuing uh, strengthening of our faith as we see Jesus work again and again and again. Now, one thing that I do love about these letters that we find in 1 Peter and 2 Peter is that we literally, quite literally, have Peter fulfilling Jesus' command. If Jesus told him, after you deny me, when, when you're done with all that, after you return to me, strengthen your brothers, this is, this is literally what he's doing. He's writing to establish them, to strengthen them. And so we find that Peter is indeed being faithful here. He's doing what Jesus told him to do. He's coming back and reminding his hearers, he's reminding you and me of the gospel. Now, Peter uses these words, establish and truth, because he's kind of coming from this idea of uh, a legal argument. These are, these are terms that would be used, you know, to convince, and he's writing to come against those who are opposing him, these false teachers. They're coming with their arguments, and Peter says, no, you have been established, the facts have been established, the truth of the gospel has been established, and what he's wanting to do is he's beginning to lay the foundation of uh, a counter-argument. He's beginning to lay the foundation of contradicting these lies that are being brought by these false teachers. And these false teachers want to uproot the Christians in this church. And so Peter's really coming and he's saying, by, by being established, by having the truth of the gospel, you already have what you need. You don't need to believe the lies of the false teachers. You don't need to participate in uh, their guilt trips. You don't need to uh, give in to the freedom that they're saying that you have, which is not true. But you have the fullness of all that you need. Paul speaks similarly uh, in Colossians chapter 1. He says we're complete. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. The hope, he says, laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard. 
before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. He says the word of the truth, the gospel. There's synonyms here, similar to what Peter's remarking of. He says, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit in increasing. Now, we just talked about last week, about when you obey uh, the commands that Peter gives to, to participate in this chain of virtues, when you do these things, they will, they will allow you to bear fruit. But if you do not do them, then you will be ineffective or ineffective and unfruitful. And what Paul says in Colossians is that the truth of the gospel, the power, it's gone throughout the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So again, there's the grace of God, the gospel being identified, being connected to the truth. They don't need to be taught again. They don't need to be given this new insight. They don't need to uh, hear this counter-argument from these false teachers. But what Peter is saying here is this. I'm leaving you a legacy. I'm leaving you a testament that this is the truth. What you have been taught is the truth. What you have been called to is the truth. And it is effective. It is being used throughout the world that uh, you will bear fruit if you continue in these ways. Peter is, of course, speaking of the gospel. And this is the lesson that Peter had to learn. Peter himself had to learn this lesson about not deviating. Because what happened when Peter, uh, early, earlier on in his life, when he went and, and got a little carried away in Jerusalem, well, Paul, the apostle, had to show up and bring a little rebuke. We read in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what Paul says. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, right? So here's, what, here's what's happening. Paul says, I'm in Jerusalem, and I see that there's Peter here. He's having some meals uh, with, uh, with Gentiles. And uh, as soon as the Jewish brothers would show up, Peter would act like he's like not having meals with with Gentiles, and he would, like, excuse himself and be like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I'm, I'm good, like, I'm on my own. I'm not really associating with them. And he would start to act like he was, like, this, uh, you know, pious Jew who saw this divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and Paul says, I got to Jerusalem, and I saw Peter, like, pulling this off and trying to, like, kind of, uh, you know, two-time both of these groups— he says, I saw that this, this is not in step with the gospel, the truth of the gospel. What Paul says is, there's some false teaching going on right here, and Peter's living a hypocritical life. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, before them all, he just called them out right in front of everybody, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He just is like, yo, I'm calling you out in front of everybody right here. We're going to settle this once and for all. Because for Paul, what he understood was that the truth of the gospel was important. The power of the gospel needed to be uh, demonstrated there before all. 
How was the gospel being exalted there? How was the gospel being demonstrated? How was the power of the gospel being shown? It was being shown in a couple ways. We'll break it down. First, the power of the gospel was being shown that uh, as Christ's blood was shed at Calvary, he reconciles Jew and Gentile, uh, unclean and clean together to have only one people. There is one body, one spirit, one baptism, one Christ. We know that there is uh, neither Jew nor Greek, no, no Gentile, no Jew divide, but we are all one in Christ. Furthermore, Jesus has to show up to Peter and tell him, uh, you know, in this, in this vision that uh, what God has made clean, uh, that he, Peter ought not to call unclean. And so the power of the gospel is put forth in showing that it reconciles all people to Christ, whether you were considered clean or unclean, because it's not about your works, but about the power of the blood of Christ, about his perfect life, about his perfect work. And so primarily we find there that in that work of salvation, the gospel is being demonstrated. Now, the gospel is also being demonstrated in this interaction between Paul, Peter, and this, uh, this rebuke that's happening publicly, in that Paul is coming wanting to say that there's reconciliation that's been happening here. It's coming in the sense of a rebuke that Jesus has already paid for Peter's sinful actions to uh, not believe the truth of the gospel, to want to value his own identity so high above others that he is trying to show that he's only a Jew when he's with the Jews and he's cool with being a Gentile when he's with the Gentiles. He's seeking to protect his own identity, and it's in this rebuke that that Paul is saying, no, Jesus has died, his blood has shed, so that way you can be forgiven of this sin that you're participating in. We find that Peter, in, in turn, does repent, and hence we have uh, some of the further letters and his effective ministry. He does repent, and so he believes the truth of the gospel, and he says, I see what I have done, and I repent, and I'm changing my ways, and I'm going to follow Christ and teach the truth of the gospel. And so the gospel happens on all these levels, but then also with those people who he sinned against, the Gentile people, the Jews who were there, who were believing these other things, the gospel infiltrates their hearts and get, empowers them with the ability to forgive because ultimately God is the primary offended party in sin. And if God has forgiven Peter for his sinful actions of showing partiality, then these people also ought to forgive Peter when they see him repent as well. And so the gospel happens on like four or five, six level. I mean, we can keep going and like look at the incredible nuance of all of these things, but the gospel is present ever uh, as, as this multifaceted diamond that is presented in this interaction. The gospel is present there, demonstrating its power. And so this is why Peter is so adamant. He's so adamant here in his letter that they ought to be established in the truth. Now, we recall that this is a testimony, and this is, or a testament. That's why he continues in verse 13. He says this, I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. 
Peter says this, he brings us forth because he knows that the time of the end of his life is near. But here's what he does. He, he opens up by making his case, saying this, I think it is right. Because of what is at stake, because he knows what is at stake, the, the eternal nature of our souls, the decisions and the impacts and the implications of believing the gospel have, Peter says, I am going to remind you constantly. I know that I do not have much time left, but as long as I am in this body, I will stir you up by way of reminder. I will stir you up by way of reminder. Now, in some of your, um, your passages, you, it might say, as long as I am in this tent. But he's speaking here of, uh, of the body. We'll get a little bit more to that in a second, but here's what he's saying. As I am alive, as I have breath in my lungs, as I have a voice to proclaim, I will stir you up by way of reminder. The reminders are important because what happens is when time goes by, our memories fade. When there's external pressure from surrounding culture or society, when there's uh, internal pressure from friends or family or churches, and there's a temptation to change things, to want to satisfy others, to want to be seen as right. And especially in Peter's time, there's not like this massive library of letters. They lived in an oral culture. So if these things weren't passed down, there was potentially, uh, you know, a loss of information. And so what Peter says is, I'm writing to record this. I'm trying to give you a written record of something to be passed down, something to hold on to. So you can have my testament written down. You can have an exhortation to hold on to. And he knows that it's his responsibility. As long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. This, and if you get anything, I want you to get this. This is what the gospel should do. It should stir you up. You shouldn't ever hear the truth of the gospel and be like, okay. It always calls us to a response. Jesus always calls us to a response. You can't encounter Jesus and be indifferent. He doesn't allow that. His demand on you is great. Every time you encounter Jesus, you have to respond to him. You either fall down in worship or you go away sad because he didn't give you what you wanted. You either receive what he has for you, or you reject. There's not like a, I thought he was kind of cool. Like, we really like that, like, that middle road, like, I'm going to protect, like, my identity sort of viewpoint. Jesus doesn't ever leave us that. He's completely useless to us in that sense. He won't allow us to be in that spot. He calls us 
to encounter him, to respond to him. And so as Christians, it's not just the job of pastors and leaders to remind each other of the gospel, but we should be reminding each other. And when we do, when we, when we remind each other of the gospel, you shouldn't just be sharing that with somebody and being like, okay, do you understand? It's what are you going to do about it now that you understand? I've heard your problem. I've heard your situation. I've heard your circumstance. I've responded to you with the truth of the gospel. Now, what are you going to do to show that you believe the gospel? What are you going to do to show that you enjoy Jesus more? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to him? We're not ever just putting stuff out there. We want to see Jesus encounter each person. Because he's the only one who can do the work. He's the only one that can fix us. He's the only one that can recover our, our sinful hearts. He's the only one that can empower us to serve him faithfully. Peter says, I don't have much time left. I've got to deal with this. I've got to communicate this. He knows his time is short. I think this is <clears throat> why he uses, uh, I mean, he gives us an example of how he knows, but he also puts this comparison out here for us to, to let the idea of, of this, um, the eternal implications of this teaching land with us. When he says here, as long as I'm in this body, the word that he can also use there is tense. What he's trying to say here is that his, his uh, physical body is it's really temporary. He's going to be moving on to be given a glorified body. Paul writes of this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, right, he's speaking of the body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, that we, but that we would be further clothed. So that is what is mortal, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we were at, <clears throat> at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by sight, or walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For if we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul's making this case that there is a, a temporal nature to our physical bodies, but we will have an eternal physical body that will be given a glorified body. And he says here, the implication of your decision to follow Jesus, the implication of your decision to be established in the truth will lead to that glorified body. And he says, I'm, I'm at the end. I'm drawing near to the time where I will give up this temporal tent 
He's really demonstrating his weakness. He's showing that his, his physical body is breaking down. That it's inadequate. And he's doing this because he wants to bring a sense of urgency. A real sense of urgency to uh, his hearers. I think we can all agree that whenever anyone starts speaking very specifically and plainly about their own death, it is startling. When everyone says, well, here's what's going on, and here's what's going to happen to me, and here's how I'm going to go, and here's what, and all of these specifics, and they start emphasizing this and commanding attention, speaking of their own death, it is a startling thing. All of a sudden, everyone's, everyone's ears perk up, and they're like, what in the world? Like, this is super awkward. Like, why is this person talking like this? Why are they communicating this? And I think what he's trying to do here is exactly this. As he brings forth this uh, startling news, as he hears this, or as he, as he communicates this, his hearers will be like, wait, what are you talking about? What's going, what? As, as he, he uses this idea, this concept, as a tool. I mean, not only is it factual, but it seems like he's trying to use this to startle the church, to wake it up, and to be like, yo, you need to listen. I'm speaking of my own death. It he wants to combat the lies of the, uh, of the enemy. He wants to combat the lies of the false teachers with this provocative speech. And when you consider someone speaking of their own death like this, it really prompts you to like start thinking about the gospel again. You're like, oh man, I better like figure out my life. I better get my life in order. I better figure out what I believe. Peter doubles down in verse 14. He says, Since I know that I am putting off of my body, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. He speaks of it as if he's going to take off these clothes and put on new clothes, similar to what we saw in 2 Corinthians 5. If you will be given a new body, a new tent, one not made with hands, but given to him by Jesus. He knows his time is short. And then he kind of gives us like this little remark, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now, perhaps this is something that the Lord kind of spoke to him about um, in his current circumstance as he sees uh, persecution arising. He sees the increase uh, in hardship and oppression that is happening upon the church. Um, he is writing at the time of Nero, who was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians. Uh, and so perhaps he is seeing the signs around him. But I think his, his argument, his belief, is really based in the very words of Jesus. In John chapter 21, we get a little insight here, where Jesus is speaking directly to Peter. of his death, he says this, truly, truly, uh, John 21, 18, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, 
you, are, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. In that text there, what, what is being said by Jesus is this, that his hands would be stretched out in a way that he did not choose. And as you look at church history, church history tells us that Peter was uh, indeed crucified, uh, similarly to uh, Jesus, but not wanting to be crucified in the same way, not wanting to, uh, feeling that he is able to take up that same role, uh, he asked to, you know, be humbled even further to be crucified upside down. He's like, I don't want to, like, I can't, I can't deal with, like, going through what he went through. Like, I gotta, I can't follow in those footsteps in that same way. He went willingly. He went uh, as a martyr. But as he writes this, I, I, you know, I can't help but think that the words of Jesus are echoing in his mind, that his hands would be stretched out, that he would be dressed by another, that he would not have control over his own body, But the interesting thing of all of this is that right after Jesus makes the statement of what will happen, he puts a response there, right after. You can't encounter Jesus without responding. He says, Peter, here's what's going to happen. And then he says this, follow me. And Peter's response there could be like, I will follow you. Or he could be like, no, this does not sound like a good idea. Like, what you're telling me, that doesn't seem like a great end. I'm out. Again, Jesus does not allow you to be indifferent. He presents himself. He presents what will happen as a result of following him. And then he says, follow me. And so it seems as though Peter sees the, the events uh, in his life that are shaping up that will ultimately lead to his death. And he's purposing to see these things written down. We end with verse 15, essentially restating uh, what he has shared thus far. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. He is interested, committed to seeing that the truth of the gospel, that the power of the gospel is passed down. That he is as active as he can be verbally, through uh, written word, if he's able to travel, everything that he can do, he sees that it is uh, used in service of the proclamation of the gospel. Whatever he has, whatever resources he has, whatever talents, whatever abilities he has, he's going to use them so that more people can be committed to the truth of the gospel, that they can hear the truth of the gospel. And I, and I love this because, because what it tells us is this. It's just as important for you and I to hear the truth of the gospel as Christians as it is for people who have not heard it, who have not responded to the truth of the gospel, for unbelievers, for those who are outside of the church. Evangelism is extremely important because Jesus told us that we ought to do it. But we also have to 
have that evangelism flow out of our own belief, our own identity of who Jesus is and that he has saved us, he's rescued us. You can't go out and do the work that he's called you to do if you have first not been changed by the truth of the gospel, if you are not standing in the truth of the gospel, if you are not established in your faith, you can't do those other things. You can't do them until you yourself have met the risen Christ. And so like Peter, I'll encourage you, make every effort. Make every effort to know Jesus, to enjoy him, to love him more. And when you do that, when you put that proper uh, order in place, as Jesus explained to the highest level scholars, to the most theologically savvy people of his time, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, as they were there, they were asking him, what is the, what is the greatest commandment in God's law? He just tells them, like, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with our heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Boom. Love God. Love him. Know him. Heart, soul, mind, strength. The entirety of your being, all that you have, all that you are, all that you're given, you love him. You adore him. Your heart is set upon him. And then without being asked, he says, but the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself. You can't even look externally until you have been committed to loving Jesus first. Know him, enjoy him, love him, and let him take care of loving your neighbor as yourself. We want to see him clearly. We want to exalt him so that we can uh, be satisfied in him. We can understand that we have been accepted, that we can live in a world uh, that tells us we're not good enough, that we're insufficient, that tells us prove why you belong here. When Jesus all along says, you're already mine, you already belong here, all that I have is yours. I've given my life for you. And so as we encounter the risen Christ this morning, his same words ring out to us. Follow me. Let's follow him together. Let's move forward in faith, trusting that he is the only one who can save us. He is the only one that can satisfy our souls. He's the only one that can meet the deepest longings of our heart. He's the only one that can rescue us from Satan's sin, from death, from ourselves, from the lies of the world. He's the only one. And he's made a way for that to happen. And so let's respond to him now. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness. We're thankful that through your great love, you have decided to give us new life, new breath. You've decided to raise us with you from the dead, bringing us from death to life, bringing us from darkness into your marvelous, marvelous light. Lord, though we were far from you, though we were dead in our sins, though we were filthy and wretched and poor, you loved us so much that you shed your blood for us. Cleaning us, Lord, making us pure, white as snow, so that we might look upon you in your holiness, that we might be welcomed in 
as sons and daughters, that we might be able to know you and to enjoy you. And so, Lord, we see your purity. We see your beauty this morning. Lord, we pray that you would refine us, cleanse us, make us new, sanctify us as we draw near to you. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, you promised that you would give us your Holy Spirit as a helper. It's more advantageous for us to have your Spirit indwelling us, empowering us as believers. Lord, as your word has told us this morning, is the guarantee, the confirmation of our salvation. Lord, it's your Holy Spirit who gives us right desires, who empowers us to live for you, who gives us the, the ability to ask for you to, to lord over us, to rule over us. And so, thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you so much for seeing us in the state that we were in and not looking away, not turning away, but being so patient and kind, being so caring and loving. Lord, we want to respond to you now in worship and praise and thanksgiving. Call us to respond, Jesus. We love you. Amen.